Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 95. We're in the final phase of Operation Modular, November 1987, and the SADF was lining up Fapla's 16 Brigade after giving them a bloody nose on the 9th. Combat Group Bravo was going to draw Fapla's attention between the Mianae and Vampula rivers, southeast of Quito, Guanabali, but that was a diversion. 59 Brigade was based there and moving slowly in a northerly direction to support 16 Brigade, almost due east of the town. There are a series of short rivers that rise to the north, east and south of Quito, Guanabali. Most flow westwards and join the Quito River, and it was along these rivers that most of the next phase of Operation Modular would be fought. The Reki spotted T-54-55 tanks heading towards the source of the Hube River, and the South African commander, Commandant Dion Ferreira, was weighing up whether or not to neutralize these heavy weapons before continuing with the attack on 16 Brigade. The South Africans were still not fully aware of what 59 Brigade was doing, although they had a better idea about 16. During the night of the 10th of November, the SADF pulled off a switcheroo, moving Combat Group Alpha to the south of 16 Brigade. Combat Group Charlie was now slightly north. Early on the morning of the 11th, Combat Group Alpha was in position and began to fire their Rattle 90 guns along with the Rattle 81 mortars towards Fapla trenches. The G5s also began to pepper 16 Brigade along with the multiple rocket launches, the Valkyries. On the same day, the Angolans were celebrating their independence, but as the Russian advisors met with their African colleagues for muted festivities, mirages flew overhead and began to bomb the Angolans. Something quite unimaginable is happening now, wrote Russian translator Igor Zhdokhin. The Angolan troops are almost completely demoralized. The brigades are on average at 45% strength. For every 10 or 15 shells launched by the enemy, the Angolans are able to send only one. SADF's rate of fire was wearing Fapla down, while the Rekis and artillery spotters were passing on information constantly, and eventually they picked up 59th Brigade's shifting position. The Russians reported that the Angolans had spotted what they called their buffalo, that was 3-2 battalion, and the advisers wrote that the Angolans fear the South Africans like fire. The advisers had been grumbling for some time about their allies, noting that the Angolan morale was dangling by a thread. The Russians complained that the MiGs stayed away for most of the 11th, and when they arrived late in the day, they often remained at high altitude. As with all soldiers on the ground, they didn't really understand the complexities of what was going on, because the MiGs did come in low that morning and the bombs landed around 50 metres away from Combat Group Charlie's anti-aircraft troop. Just to prove it, a gunner was hit in the back by shrapnel from one of the bombs. The SAF was Mirage pilots were also flying in low and fast, but they were limited in the effectiveness by the distance from the airfields in southwest Africa, and had only a few minutes over the region east of Quito, Quanabali, so there were no dogfights. The Chambinga River flows directly westwards from its source a few kilometres east of Quito, Quanavali, and joins the Quito River at the town. You can imagine the scenario with the SADF now advancing in a westward direction straight towards 16th Brigade. At the same time, things were becoming more difficult for Combat Group Charlie as it advanced, struggling through the thick bush. They arrived 90 minutes late at the target. That meant the element of surprise was lost, and 16th Brigade used the delay to withdraw further into the dense bush between the Hube and Chambinga sources, moving eastwards. When Combat Group Charlie arrived at the target point designated Alpha at 1000 hours 45, there were no Angolans to be found. The South Africans had become disorientated in the bush, then Ferreira ordered them to turn north to a second objective called Bravo. However, without modern navigation equipment, it was like moving around in a thick green pea soup. 
Only one vehicle had what amounted to a very primitive form of GPS, but this didn't help much. Combat Group Charlie's commander Leon Murray was monitoring his infantry, which had now been struggling for most of the day through the thick bush on foot, and they were beginning to suffer the effects. To many people, this doesn't sound like a long march, but you must remember they were heavily armed, carrying ten or more magazines and spare rounds and webbing as well as water, while the extreme humidity was taking its toll. The South Africans were becoming more spooked by the minute, with three twos commander Piet van Sale reporting afterwards that when we approached one particularly thick piece of bush, someone started firing into it unprovoked. The next moment, nearly everybody was letting loose. He had what he called a hell of a time getting the troops to stop their panic shooting. Eventually, at just after 1.30 in the afternoon, Charlie Group's Alpha Company commander asked if they could stop and recover. Marea agreed. Unfortunately for the South Africans, Fapla reconnaissance units had been keeping a very close eye on the advancing troops. As the South Africans warily dropped to the ground under the trees, Fapla opened up with automatic cannons, mortars and small arms from less than 200 metres away. Bullets and shells were shredding the trees and making sawdust of them, and I leapt from the tank, said Fonseil. Two of his men were killed moments later as a shell landed on one of the Ulifant tanks. Another trooper was hit by a 14.5mm anti-aircraft shell. At least seven infantrymen were hit by treetop snipers in these early minutes. This took the SADF completely by surprise and pandemonium broke out until tank commander Major André Retief pulled himself together and ordered a firebolt action. All tanks and men took aim in the direction of Fapla and the intensity of fire brought the SADF a few crucial minutes and they began to move forward. The best defence is attack, after all. It wasn't going to be that simple because Battle Group Charlie was sent very bad news from their intelligence. 16 Brigade had been bolstered by three new companies of men and at least 22 tanks, which were now outflanking Charlie. Marais shifted his tanks to his right, worried that the T-54-55s were going to somehow get around his mechanised units and attack from the rear. This was an extremely fluid battle that was developing, and at this moment the quickest and most agile side was going to succeed over the next few minutes. Marais managed to manoeuvre some of the rifles to the right, as well as an anti-tank platoon of rifle 90s to his left flank. Just after 2pm, a T-54-55 broke out of the bush directly in front of a rifle 20. Basically, it was armed with a pop gun compared to the monster tank directly ahead. Gunner MJ Mitten pumped rounds into the tank like AM Tom had done only a few days before. The weapon firing 12 20mm armour-piercing rounds per second, chipping bits off the tank, and like a giant being stuck with pins, it turned towards the rifle instead of continuing through to attack the infantry behind. Mitten appeared to be made of stern stuff. He kept firing even as the tank's gun turned on him, and moments later a second T-54-55 thundered out of the bush, fired two rounds from its 100mm gun, which ripped through the rifle, killing the driver and seriously wounding Mitten. The South Africans could no longer predict from which direction these heavy tanks would appear. The rifle began to burn, and Mitten managed to elevate his cannon, allowing another crew member a few moments to run from the shattered armoured car. But Mitten was critically injured, peppered by shrapnel. He dragged himself out of the rifle, then collapsed alongside the armoured car, seriously wounded. He didn't make it out that night, dying shortly afterwards. The Ulifan tanks moved up to help, heading towards 16 brigade positions, along with the troops on foot. It was chaos, this fire and movement conducted through minefields, which then blew one of the Ulifant tank tracks right off. Tiffies rushed in and chained the tank to a second Ulifant, which pulled it out of the line of fire. Tiffy Commander Lieutenant de Villiers Foss was awarded the honorous crooks for his courage, 
rounds bouncing off the ground and vehicles around him as he slipped a hook on the trackless elephant. The thundering sounds were deafening, big guns of both the T-54, 55s and the elephants firing constantly, mortars and artillery shells landing amongst the troops and the vehicles, machine guns, small arms, automatic fire continuing constantly. The South African tanks began to get the better of the Angolans. Eventually, seven T-54, 55s were destroyed, but another rattle was blown up by a mine, then shot up by a tank. The SEDF threw out a long, snaking explosive known as Blofada, it was supposed to trigger mines, but didn't always work. It was a string of explosives weighing around 500 kilograms fired by a rocket over a minefield from a Casper. As it hit the ground, it exploded, detonating the mines and clearing a path. That was the theory. The Americans used similar systems in Iraq decades later. Rocket propelled or fired from a gun. These snakes of explosives detonate and set off IEDs or booby traps in houses. The plofada was experimental did not trigger all the mines, but the other Ulifants managed to traverse the minefield. Despite this carnage, Forsyth and 3-2 battalions scrambled forward and hit Fapla's trenches. Then another rattle detonated a mine, and a T-54-55 nearby fired on the marooned vehicle, killing the driver. A section of T-54-55s rolled up, attempting to outflank Charlie Battle Group on the left. Ulifant tanks moved in to intercept these, and two of the Russian tanks were brewed up. The time, 3.15 p.m., and the South Africans were now running short of ammunition. The attack ground to a halt, losing momentum. Brigadier Fido Smith, who commanded Forsyth, was worried about the Angolans surrounding his men and ordered their withdrawal, then ordered Combat Group Alpha to switch positions with the battle-weary units. Forsyth troops had spent most of the day alongside 3-2 Battalion, fanning out in turns, then slumping on the rattles in exhaustion if they could. Just to add spice into the battle, the MiGs returned. They appeared out of nowhere, and bombed Combat Group Alpha, which took evasive action, stopping and flinging camouflage over the vehicles, which meant Forsyth had to continue fighting alone. The sun was sinking, and the commanders knew that they did not want to fight Fapla in the dark. Very few night vision systems were available. They called for a general withdrawal, and this gave 16 Brigade another chance to escape. It was a bitter moment for a few platoons from 3-2 Battalion and Forsyth, who together had managed to infiltrate the forward line of Fapla's trenches and emptied them. Now they were being told to retreat. The South Africans obviously had no idea as they withdrew that 16 Brigade wasn't far worse shape than they thought. The Angolan Brigade was also in full retreat, burning or destroying their equipment that could not be moved as they sought solace in Quito Guanavali. Still, as they withdrew, units began running into the open felt and SAD of artillery spotters saw these companies near the Chambinga and provided accurate coordinates, a terrible bombardment of Valkyrie rockets fell upon the Fapla troops, killing more than a dozen and destroying vehicles. Russian advisor with the 16th Brigade, Lieutenant Alexander Kalan, reported to superiors in Quito that the 16th Brigade had no fuel and ammunition. Their water had also run out. The morale of the Angolans had collapsed. They had basically been knocked out. But the South Africans had also been tested. Five men on the SADF side were dead, 19 wounded, two rifles destroyed, one elephant damaged, while Fapla lost close to 400 men, at least 14 tanks, four BTR-60s and a number of logistic vehicles. Combat groups Alpha and Charlie pulled themselves together and refocused on the surviving Angolan brigades. About 4,000 men remained, along with 39 tanks in 59, 21-25 brigade and 66 brigade. Major Ratif was worried about his men. The SADF was dangerously low on ammunition. Supplies could not reach the men easily, and now as the South Africans withdrew, 
It was their turn to feel the heat from Fapla's artillery. Retief had also fretted about the Ulifant tanks, having been told by the SADF top brass to avoid losing any. Our infantry were very upset about being ordered to withdraw, said 3-2 battalions from sale later. He believed had the SADF forced the issue, they would have overrun what was left of 16 Brigade and destroyed it completely. It was ironic that at that moment on the other side, the Russian advisers were worried about exactly that. As both sides picked up their pieces, an incredible casualty evacuation was about to take place. Fonseil realized that one of three two battalions' black troops was missing and was told that the infantryman was last seen lying dead in a Fapla trench 800 meters away. Fonseil told Major Retief that his body had to be recovered. Retief denied the request, but Fonseil ignored this and ran back to the trench with the Villiers' force. They sprinted through a deadly gauntlet of fire, machine gun and AK-47 bullets ricocheting off the trees and popping dust as they went, one sprinting forwards while the other fired his R4 as cover, then swapping roles. Some of the South Africans looked on in amazement as the two leaders reached the Fapla trenches and saw the 3-2 man lying in one of these. He wasn't dead, but was seriously wounded in the back, so they made a stretcher out of their rifles and began dragging him to their lines. Fapla was firing constantly and eventually Retief realised that he must do something, so he sent one of the rattles to assist, zigzagging towards the two through the minefield. The Ulufants also began to put down covering fire. Fonseil and de Villiers' force saved the man's life, and all three survived what can only be called a miraculous Kazvak. The troops watching knew they were in the company of heroes. Their action was one of the major differences in this war between the South Africans and the Angolans. The SADF refused to leave any dead or injured behind, whatever the colour of their skin, whereas the Angolans, the Russians and Cubans appeared to care very little about their colleagues. This had a significant effect on morale, as you can imagine. The philosophy of leave no one behind is an intrinsic NATO and American standing order, as it was with the SADF. There's not a lot of time to explain more, but historically all armies that honour their men in this way tend to have a higher rate of success than those who don't. When Russia attacked Finland, the Finns would pick up their casualties and return them for proper burials, whereas the Russians left hundreds of thousands of dead men to rot in the fields. They still do. Back to our story. Mark Muller's Combat Group Alpha finally moved up to replace Combat Group Charlie while the Ulifants remained behind to support Alpha. This wasn't a clean switch. It was confused. Alpha did not have clear orders. They were merely told to replace Charlie and join up with the tank section. The South Africans were running out of time to do anything. It was only an hour to sunset. Finally, all groups withdrew to larger areas in the rear from where the wounded were Kazavak that night. The Hubi-Chambinga Gap, as the SADF called it, remained open, so what should be done now was the obvious question. There was very little sleep that night. Choppers landed, fuel lorries rumbled, then another trooper was run over. His legs were shattered as he tried to recover from the day's battle, joining the 19 others wounded. It was the second time during this operation that a vehicle had run over a sleeping soldier. Leon Marais' combat group Charlie received new orders overnight to cut off around 1,000 troops from 21 and 25 Brigade from crossing the Vimpulo River north of Hubert, while Commandant Mike Muller's combat group Alpha spread out in the bush near the Mianne and Vimpulo Rivers to stop a possible counterattack by the same brigade. That meant that Fapla's 59 Brigade was left up to its own devices, and right now they were most interested in pulling back to Quito Guanabali. They had left at least 20 tanks behind to help 16 Brigade, and these deployed in two defensive lines. One line stretched along the high ground between the Chambinga River and the Hube, 
The other was based east of the source of the Hube. Meanwhile, Fapla's 66th Brigade had two battalions at the strategically important Chambinga Bridge, although this brigade's 3rd Battalion was moving northeast of Quito Quanavali and was facing Commandant Hartsleaf's Combat Group Bravo. There was also a pioneer group from 2125 Brigade reinforced with at least 10 tanks near the source of the Vimpula River. They were threatening to strike the SADF from the flank as the South Africans pushed west. Something had to be done to make sure this pioneer group was deflected. Dion Ferreira peered at his maps and pondered. The SA Air Force and the artillery continued their bombing raids and bombardments, making life hell for Fapla's brigades. In a few days, they would shock the residents of Quito Quanavali, not because they bombed the town, they'd done that previously, but because of where they did it from, the north. This was shocking because the Fapla units and Russian advisors stationed south and east of Quito were hoping to escape north if the SADF overran the town. But it wasn't that simple. Nothing is in war, and particularly after weeks of fire and movement. The remarkable South African G5 guns were starting to wear out. There were two batteries of these, and at least three guns were out of action already. Vital parts were needed, including new barrels. Half of the support trucks had broken down. Repairs were slow. Many could not be repaired at all. The Valkyrie MRL battery had been pulled back from the Mianay River for repairs and to replenish their rockets. A logistics headache was getting worse as the fighting continued. For the South Africans, another crucial day was approaching. Friday the 13th of November 1987. During the afternoon, Fapla's 21-25 Brigade began a rapid withdrawal north towards the Mianay River. Ferreira received word almost straight away from intelligence that the brigades were on the move away from his forces, so he sent word to Combat Group Charlie's CEO Leon Marais to follow up. The Angolans were moving quickly and had the upper hand despite Marais turning north to try and head them off south of the Vimpulo River. It just so happened that 3-2 Battalion had a great deal of experience along the Vimpulo, and Ferreira wanted the battalion to work alongside Forsyth mechanized infantry once more as they sought to slam the door shut on the Angolans. At this time, Russian advisor team leader Anatoly Mikhailovich Artyomenko sent a message to the military district command proposing that 2125 Brigade should occupy the heights of the Vyposhto area, which it would have been very difficult for the SADF to assault. Instead, he was told to move to the source of the Hubei River and occupy defensive positions there. Much of that area had been mined and the Angolans had long planned to use this territory to stymie South African advances. A powerful thunderstorm was brewing as they all began their move. But Pereira did not realize its significance yet. South Africa's combat group Charlie was redeploying north with a view to setting up an ambush at crossing positions on the Vimpula River with four in tow. 3-2 Battalion Commander Fasail radioed HQ wanting to know exactly where the Angolans were headed. His men had spent some time along this river in mid-October and there were a few spots to cross. Fasail didn't want to guess. He hoped that the Rekis had seen enough to help. It seemed the Angolans were heading towards Sandumba Ford, so 3-2 Battalion moved into what they thought was the most likely position on the 14th of November. Reconnaissance patrols were sent out which confirmed the main ambush should be laid two kilometres southeast of Sandumba Ford. Combat Group Charlie had travelled more than 20 kilometres by that time, and instead of covering the ford, they stopped short. De Villiers Foss and Fonsale wondered where they were and started moving north, eventually meeting up with the elements of the group, it was night, and the thunderstorm was crashing all around, a particularly violent thunderstorm, as if it was competing with the terrible battles over the last few days. Three two lead elements bumped into Charlie, and as they discussed what to do, 
they heard tank engines. Immediately, everyone knew they'd missed the Angolans. Fapla had already crossed the Vimbula River, and precisely at the point where Charlie was supposed to ambush them at Sindumba Ford. The Angolan 21-25th Brigades were now moving north of the river and dashing towards the Hube, which was around 12 kilometers away. The Angolans had completed a scissors movement of their own while the 21-25 Brigade dashed north. One battalion of the 66th Brigade was moving along the bank of the Vampulo and turned, heading towards the source of the Hube as well. They'd meet up with the 21-25 in two days. It was then that the next main battle was to take place east of Quetoquanavali. The SADF had missed another opportunity to crush two more battalions of FAPLA's troops, but no one would take responsibility for this. After the operation, there was going to be quite a bit of finger-pointing, which continues to this day. Veterans have many theories about whose fault it was and so on. But for once, the South Africans had been outmaneuvered in the bush by a highly mobile enemy, an enemy that had learned the basic art of mechanized warfare after years of facing the SADF. They also knew that movement at night was critical, when the South Africans tended to hunker down. Fapla had experienced so many dawn attacks by South African forces in numerous mobile operations that they had trained to use the night more effectively. All hope was not lost, however. Combat Group Bravo had moved up from the Mianne River to reinforce Charlie. Everyone was galloping towards the strategic Chambinga Bridge. It's always geography that plays the main role in a war, and so it was now. A unique feature on the battlefield that was to cause the Angolans some trouble was the Viposhto high ground, which lay to the south of the Hube River and the Chambinga River Bridge. The fleeing Angolans had a choice. Either cross the Hube and then aim straight at the Chambinga River Bridge, or turn at the Hube and follow it east, then turn back past the Hube's source and strike back westwards towards the bridge. The best and the quickest option was to cross the Hube fast. This was not going to be possible. 21-25 Brigade turned right or east, then dashed along the thickly wooded southern bank of the Hube. To their south was the Vipushta high ground, only a few kilometers square but a significant feature. By keeping on the southern and thickly wooded bank of the Hube, they may have escaped the mirages and the SED of attention, making a dash around the source. Of course, thundering east or right of the high ground was the SED of heading towards that same source as well. Mike Muller's Combat Group Alpha, Robbie Hotsleaf's Combat Group Bravo and Leon Marais' Combat Group Charlie were all now focused on stopping the Angolans' escape. On the 15th of November, a telegram numbered 103 was sent by the commander of 2125 Brigade to Quito Quanavali, advising the military district commander that four of the T-54-55 tanks' steering mechanisms had been damaged. The response came shortly afterwards. That brigade should go on to the offensive in the area of the source of the Hubei River at 1000 hours on the 16th of November. The damaged tanks could still move, but only directly forwards or backwards. Not ideal when facing the South African Ulifant, but the SEDF didn't know this at the time. Despite these challenges, the Russians embedded in the Angolan army said later they were impressed with the detail of the directive. Each group had received very clear orders about where to direct their attack. A major battle was shaping up, which would take place on the 16th of November, with both sides in for some bloodletting. What happened next is for episode 96. Please rate the podcast on iTunes. It helps raise the visibility. If you want to contact me, head off to abwarpodcast.com. There's a contact form on the homepage. Or direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next, fast bait. Mm-hmm.